Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. What's up? This is Unpaid Bill from Questlove Supreme. So Questlove does this thing usually like once a season, where he sits down for a one-off. Many of us do that, and you can expect to hear mine soon. But anyway, back in May of 2020, Amir spoke with Nora Jones about her career an unlikely journey into the spotlight. There's a lot of heart and soul in this conversation, and if you know Nora's music, that's no surprise. As we celebrate Women's History Month, we are picking special episodes for classics. This one is very special, and you'll hear why. All right, this is going to be silly. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Questlove Supreme. Uh, This is Questlove. Today I'm solo Solo, alone, holding it down the fort uh, without Boss or Unpayville, Sugar Steve, Lightyear, or Fran Tigolo. Uh, we are very honored today to be talking shop with a good friend of mine, multi Grammy winner, multi instrumentalist, singer, just just about everything. Almost almost celebrating 20 years in this industry since her debut. What what else is there to say? So well rounded, so awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Nora Jones to Questlove Supreme. Hi. I'm, I'm on a cheering session. How you doing? <laughs> I'll take it. Where Where are you right now? I'm in the country. I'm in a I'm in a bedroom. I'm in a bedroom okay. here. Yeah, I'm in bed. Okay. okay. So I'm I'm yeah. sort of in bed. Yeah. Kind of in this new reality. Yep. So yes, of course, I have to ask, like, how are you adjusting to what we are now calling the new reality. You know, for a lot of creatives I know, this is either a moment for them to finally just take a breather and not have to deal with the the circle of of the work that we put into. For other people, it's like, okay, more creativity. Like, where are you falling on this? Well, my kids are almost four years old and six, so... I wish I could be more creative, <laughs> but um, there isn't a ton of time. Okay. To to, but I have a little 
snippets of ideas and yeah it's more about how do I get them to not yell at me okay so get you're creative you're in that way full-time entertainment bit, mode yes exactly full-time entertainment mode okay I see <laughs> oh would you like a hot dog for lunch again okay cool um, <laughs> sorted there okay it's, it's good too. though it's a good distraction I'll say that okay yeah the the prime purpose of the the podcast at least for me is kind of seeing the 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 machinery inside the vehicle and um always the creative process so yeah i mean i know you've been asked this a billion times before but you know i like to take this approach for our viewers or our listeners um where were you born i was born in new york um okay. actually yeah what part mom, of New York? I think her apartment was like on 27th and Lexington. Oh, okay. In Manhattan. Yeah. Do you know your first musical memory, your first childhood musical memory? Probably my mom's records. I don't know the exact first, but I remember listening to Willie Nelson and Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin. So your mom was a promoter, correct? You know, she she that's how she met my dad. She worked for a promoter for a short time, but... Not okay. really, not like long term. So she but, wasn't um, the Bill Graham of her era that time. No, of she no. definitely wasn't. <laughs> she okay. she had many careers. She was a, a dancer and then she broke her ankle and then she was a in the theater and he, she worked in commercials behind the scenes and then she was a real estate agent and then a nurse. So she was kinda all over the place. Okay. So her record collection sort of seeped into you. What what types of records mm -hmm. were those? A lot of gospel, Aretha Franklin gospel era stuff. A lot of early Ray Charles, um, country music. She's from Oklahoma. Oh, okay. So that was sort of in the water, too, because I grew up in Texas. We moved to Texas when I was about three. Really? Yeah. So how different was that from, well, I mean, not that you would have. I don't have that many memories. New, New York memories. Yeah. <laughs> But I, actually, my first memory is of a dream I had of playing in the playground at Washington Square Park. So, but okay, so you have some that, New York no. connection. There. <laughs> I don't really remember. I see. So even in the beginning, I mean, what was there for you? I know, like a lot of musicians come through either an older sibling's record, um, or you know, like a cousin or someone that puts them onto it. Um, but for you, like, did you also like the music of the day? Like, I mean, by the time you were five or six, like Madonna was a thing. So like, yeah. do you remember like your first actual purchase outside of your mother's that, record collection? Um, yeah. I mean, I don't think I listened to the music of the day till I was about nine or 10. And then I sort of started listening to pop radio. Oh, so you were old soul from zero to nine? <laughs> Well, kind of. That explains a lot. Okay. Yeah. That, that explains your seasoning. All right. I listen to like oldies radio and oldies. You know, for us in that generation, it was like 1950s and 60s pop music. You got tricked. Not the Beatles, like not as cool as that yet, but like before that, pre that, you know. No, that that's my story. Like, yeah, which my is dad, great. My dad was an oldies doo-wop singer, so I thought... The thing was that he tricked me. I thought that was the music of the day 
That's so funny. <laughs> and then in first grade, like my music teacher's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> like here are the Bee Gees, here are, you know, that sort of thing. But I thought like Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers was like, I thought that was like a new record. Why do fools fall in love? Like that sort of thing. That's pretty funny. Yeah, that was my stuff until I was like nine. And then, because my mom didn't listen to pop radio. She listened to NPR. So I didn't know about that stuff. Maybe I had like a babysitter who was into Madonna. But then when I was nine, it was full on whatever was out and popular I was into. So what were you like? How are you relating to your friends in the area, like in school and whatnot, if you didn't share the same music taste that they did? I don't even know. I mean, I was in choir in school and church. I don't remember it being weird or being feeling different. And then by the time kids were more interested in that kind of stuff, I was already listening. I think the first cassette I purchased was Digital Underground because I liked the Humpty Dance. Dance. Yeah, I loved it. It was the best thing I'd ever heard. Okay. (laughs) Fiona Apple also has a hilarious story where when she was making title, I think she was like getting gas and she saw like Shock G from Digital Underground, like lost it, like just ran into him. That's amazing. Freaking Digital Underground. Okay. Um, You mentioned... uh, Playing piano in church. What type of church was this? Was this? This was a Methodist church in, you know, suburban Texas. It was um, it was a nice enough church, but they had um, a really. I actually, I played. I sang in church. I didn't play piano in church. Oh, okay. But but um, they, she was a cool choir director. I think she was a maybe a former Catholic, and so she taught us all these Latin hymns. Right. So it was cool. And then, you know, we did like Our God is an Awesome God. And then I stopped going to church after that. But oh, okay. Um, not because of the song, but yeah. You know, it was like a mix of, <laughs> it was a mix of stuff, is my point. Trust me, everyone has their church exodus move. So. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I see that. Um, you, but children's be, choir, basically. Oh, okay. Well, it yeah. should be noted, you went to, um, you went to Booker T. Washington? Yeah. High school? Yeah. Uh, notables. So I mean, at the time, well, Roy is way older than you. Yeah, so. he was older, but he was like the hometown hero. So were you in school at the time of Erica, or was that even she was way? No, older. she was a little bit older too. And her album came out uh, when I was a junior, maybe or a senior. So again, it was like a huge, big deal for us all. And I was obsessed with that album and. It was okay. so cool. She came back and like did a talk at the school, and it was fun. Okay, what what is it? What is it about that high school? Is that a performing arts high school, or yeah? Is it, so what is it? Because oftentimes, I mean, when people think of Texas, we don't think of like performing arts schools and <laughs> you know, type of artistic expressions and that sort of thing. But, like, is the community like that down there? or? I mean, Texas is a big place. The Dallas area is a huge suburban place full of small neighborhoods, you know, or big neighborhoods. So, you know, you can travel 20 miles and it's a completely different community. Um, but so this school was cool because it, it, draw, it, it draws from all over the city. You have to audition to get in, but... Anybody can go there. So kids were commuting from all over the city. And it was sort of a, it was, 
I don't know, it was, it was like the place where all the cool, weird artists went, <laughs> ended up, you know. Okay. I came from like a super heavy football marching band situation. Cheerleaders were queens of the school. To, you were in the marching band? I was. I played saxophone. You play saxophone? I, I mean, I haven't in 30 or 25 years, maybe. But, but um, if you see a saxophone, I'm assuming an alto or a tenor. Like alto. I do hold you, a special place for marching band in my heart. <laughs> but you'll never pick up a sax again. I mean, it's so gross. My, ah. I still have my saxophone. No, no, the saxophone's not gross. My, I still have my saxophone. And I think like the, the reed is still attached from 25 years. It's probably disgusting and growing all <laughs> kinds of mold in it. But um, for some reason, I still have it somewhere. I feel like you're the type of creative that will... You're the type of artist that I feel as though you're you're you like experiments. You often change, evolve, and yeah. go through a metamorphosis. Uh, I do. I, I like that. I it's think, fun. Okay, when you when you break out your saxophone, I'll be in that band. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to happen. I need to practice guitar more first. <laughs> you, you always down your like every clip I see of you. And you talk about your guitar. You're always saying, like, I need to prove my guitar. I need to prove. But <laughs> I do. <laughs> you seem to do fine. Or are you saying that you just hide well behind whoever's playing? Oh, that's I the secret sauce. <laughs> well, I think my thing on guitar is cool. I just, I don't play enough. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not good at just playing music at home all the time. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you are if you're always playing no matter what. For so long, I think I just worked so much. I didn't even think about having to play or practice. And so now when I'm not working at all, I'm like, I forget to play, you know? I I was going to say, I I wanted to know, well, before I get into that, I wanted to know what your, when when did piano was, I mean, when all said and done, do you consider the piano your acts of choice or your voice an acts of choice? When did you start playing piano? I started playing piano when I was seven and I wanted to take piano lessons really bad. And so my mom got a piano and um, after a couple of weeks, I wanted to quit because I didn't like the idea of having to practice, you know? And Skills. so my mom, yeah, my mom was like, um, no, I bought you a piano because you wanted to play. And she said, I have, she said, you have to take until for five years and that way, and then you can quit that way. If you ever want to go back to it, it'll be easier. And I thought that was pretty annoying at the time but in hindsight it's pretty it was pretty cool because after five years I quit like on the dot I was like all right my five years is up really no more scales yeah I just didn't want to practice how I many hours a day did you have to practice I'm I'm the most lazy procrastinating practicer but um I don't even remember but I I know I had a really good teacher she was awesome but it was just the classical style of learning and I it didn't spark a lot of creativity in my mind for some reason. Um, so I quit. And then about a year later, my mom took me to like, I don't know, some, she took me to a big band concert and then she took me to see Marion McPartland play in the park. Right. And I said, this is cool. What's this? You know? Right. (laughs) Um, and so she found this teacher. Well, I would think I was playing saxophone by that time in, marching band and my saxophone teacher recommended this jazz piano teacher 
in Dallas uh-huh. named Julie Bonk. She was super cool and she was a great teacher. She taught me how to read chord changes and improvise and tried to spark me in writing songs. So it just totally took a different direction from then. So this is how you're discovering jazz chops. Yeah, this is like eighth grade when I got into jazz. Um, and my mom, she checked out like, you know, the Smithsonian jazz collection at the library and we dubbed it on a cassette and then that was my Bible for a few years. Really? Yeah. So how did you hone those chops into like, did you play in local bands, high school bands? Like, did you bond with anybody your age in, in jazz or yeah, did you I just mean, keep it to yourself? Well, being in marching band, I mean, the kids in marching band already were sort of into stuff like that. Some of them, mm-hmm. there was like a jazz band. And then I went to Interlochen for a summer. What is that? Uh, it's like an arts camp in Michigan. And oh, it's okay. two, yeah, it's two months long. And um, I got really into hanging with people who knew a lot about it, <laughs> you know? Right. And, and then I really wanted to go there. They had a, uh, uh, they have a school during the year, an art school, but you have to leave home. It's like a, what do you call it? A school where you live there. <laughs> my brain isn't working right now. But um, my mom was like, no way. You're not leaving home. <laughs> oh, so you just found, wanted to. Yeah, I just loved it. It was great. And I wanted to continue doing it. And she was like, she was like hell no. Um, check this school out. And she found Booker T. Washington. Okay. And um, we moved to Dallas just so I could be in county to, to audition and go there. And then all the kids there, that's, I mean, th- I learned from the kids at my school. I learned so much. So many of those kids knew so much about music, so many geniuses. You know, probably. I was going to say, any other notable students at there at the time that are like. Well, I think the people that I learned the most with were piano players who couple of them were a year or two older. Like I was there when Braylon Lacey was there and Sean Martin on the keys. Okay. Um, RC Williams. Right. I learned so much from these guys. They grew up in church playing piano in the church bands and stuff. And, um, they knew, I mean, they're just geniuses anyway, but I don't know. It was a cool, cool environment. Was it equally like a, sort of accepting atmosphere or did you feel like, all right, I got to come with it and let them know I speak the same language or. No, I was such a dork. I was just like, hi guys, can I hang out with you? (laughs) Um, (laughs) It was super accepting. Everybody there was an oddball, you know, anyway. So everybody was cool. Uh, See, I I went to, I went to school with uh, Christian McBride and Joey DeFrancesco. Wow. And and Kurt Rosenwinkel and oh, man. I can I I I always compare um, going to that the school I went to the Philadelphia version of that school kind of as a I I, I consider it sort of like a it was like a gang experience like a Bloods and Crips experience <laughs> that's and, funny and Joey and Chris like. They wouldn't even, they don't give you the time of day or respect. Like you instantly know that they're the (laughs) alphas of band class and that you had to, I mean, the first day of school, the first day of school, Miles Davis 
is giving a master class and wow. takes not only takes Joey and Chris uh, to do this thing with him on television, but then later <laughs> hires Joey. That's right. To replace Kenny Kirkland. So that was like my first day at the school. And so, you know, they just knew all traditional jazz. Meanwhile, Kurt Rosenwinkle, who, who's such an uh, experimental avant-garde musician. I mean, he's on Verve Records right now. But back then, he was trying to unlearn me or unteach me all the traditional, like the traditional stuff. And he's like, nah, man, I want you to listen to Frank Zappa. Yeah. And... Captain Beefheart and, you know, Montevishu Orchestra and John McLaughlin. So, you know, I was like trying to, I was on like both sides of the gang. That's great for you. <laughs> I mean, it was cool, but then I left them both for a rap career. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, like but you're, inform, you're informed by all of it and you became who you are, you know. It helped. Not, but it was, the- it was like, it was literally like being into like whatever side was winning. That was my side. Like, okay. That's funny. <laughs> you're the, you're the, the ping pong ball. Exactly. exactly. I didn't feel that. I know that attitude you're talking about. Um, it's like a young musician thing for sure. I feel like, but right. um, I didn't feel that at my school. Maybe I was too naive to see it, but I never, I never felt it. Oh, it's okay. pretty, pretty welcoming. Oh, I see. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Schmurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. 
In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. I mean, before your career took off, I mean, did you have a, a plan just for like, okay, I'll do the college thing, go to Berkeley or go to? Yeah, I, 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 well, we were in Dallas, so I did, I wanted to go to like the new school or Manhattan School of Music, but um, we stayed in state tuition because the University of North Texas has a great jazz program. Oh, okay. And so I went there for two years and I took all my classes, all my music classes, and I failed my classical piano jury because I just didn't practice enough. And then I came to New York for the summer and I had a real sort of moment of reckoning. And I, and I thought, well, if I go back to finish college, I'm going to have to take academics for two years because I already took all the jazz classes and I'm going to have to do classical <laughs> two years of classical juries and really practice. And I just didn't want to do any of that. What, so is it, what, did, in, what does that entail? What did it entail, like the classical jury part? It's not that it was so hard. It's that I really just didn't practice enough. Okay. Uh, it was like scales and arpeggios and one song. It wasn't that hard. I just... I was really into the other stuff I was doing and I kind of let it slide. Understandable. Understandable. Yeah. So once you came to New York, what was the paradigm shift that really opened its doors as far as like, okay, I can have a career and start singing? Like, what was that moment? Well, I mean, I realized that I could play gigs and, but I would have to start winning tables. <laughs> It was different because in college I had a weekly gig where I I made enough money to make my rent and um, plus tips and food. I played at this restaurant and I learned how to sing and play at the same time, which is sort of, it was just like paid practice. So it was great. Right. But then when okay. I moved to New York, I realized, oh shit, I got to wait tables because I can't make enough money playing gigs because they didn't pay very much at all. Um. And I got a little burnt out. I, I came to New York singing jazz and playing the piano, but I wasn't as good a piano player as most piano players out there. Mm -hmm. But I knew I could sing, so I had that, you know, that going for me. Yeah. Sort of, you know, trying to. I came to New York to do this thing, and then I. What happened? Your eyes just went like, oh shit. You can't hear this, can you? No. Uh, Zoe, I'm interviewing Nora Jones right. Okay, this is a flex. Um, Zoe Kravitz <laughs> just interrupted us. <laughs> I'm interviewing Nora Jones right now for my podcast. Hi, Nora Jones. Hi. She said I'm a big fan. 
right, this me is too. nice. Are, are you okay over there in London? I'm good, I'm good. Call me. I have a question for you. Call me later. Okay, thank you. Sorry. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Wait, I'm sorry. Okay. That's okay. Uh, side note, it's 2020. I'm the person that likes a person to text me first and then tell me that they're calling, not just that's cold the, call me. That's the thing that people do now, but it's kind of weird too. Wait, are you a call before you, are you a text before you call person? Yes. Or at least. Because everybody is. Or at least warn before you FaceTime. Yes, but I'm also not somebody who just picks up the phone if somebody calls me. You seem to also be someone who just picks it up no matter what. <laughs> well, I saw it was her, and I was like, okay, this must be about, I, I work on her show, so obviously, but I forgot to turn my ringer off, so I knew that Bill That's was going to kill me over that too, sorry. I turned no, it it's, it's the thing, you either, you either ignore the call if you don't want to be caught off guard or you take it anyway. So I guess that says a lot about you. Just anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Even though you prefer the text. <laughs> I didn't know how to turn it off. Sorry. Oh, I don't care. Anyway. Um, yeah. So you, you were saying that uh, singing at least gave you uh, an edge. I, yeah, I get- really, I love your voice by the way, which Thank you know, you. I don't think you get enough praise for like oh, who, who's, who's the person that, Who's your your spirit animal when you're singing? Like, I, you know, because I'm not a singer, I can't say. I know that when I'm drumming, there's four particular drummers that I know influenced and raised me, and I'm like a combination of that. But mm-hmm. who's your singing spirit animal? Um, I think growing up, it was Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin and um, Billie Holiday. All right, I'm skipping to the future. How was it working with Ray on the on his duets record? It was amazing. He was super sweet. We did three live takes, and then he left, and that was it. Just he real was, quick, in and out? It was just real quick, live takes with the band, and Billy Preston was playing Oregon, so it was awesome. My mom came. She saw him play when she was in high school, so she, it's the first time I've ever seen her quiet, you know? <laughs> Um, it was great he was he was he was pretty sick already so okay he was nice though so just cordial um, same song got out super nice though yeah like like warm and kind but um i mean I, i love all these people but i think i've tried to keep i don't know i learned i think when i came to new york and i was singing jazz and i got a little sort of disheartened and I realize I'm singing all these old songs that Billie Holiday sang. And I'm putting my own spin on it, and it's cool. But I started going to the living room and writing songs and singing songs by my friends that they were writing. And I felt a little more um, creative in that way. And I kind of fell off the jazz scene. So you didn't want to get typecast as like a sort of derivative Billie Holiday? And- I don't know if it was about wanting to get typecast. I think it was just about, I couldn't get any gigs that were satisfying. You know, I played in restaurants. I went to smalls a lot and I watched people play and it was awesome, but I couldn't get a gig there yet. And, um, I did get a gig at the living room though, where the audience listened and I felt really connected to something. I was going to say, okay, so I've been in New York for 10 years now and, um, I'll often, I got like, I got a little, maybe four or five in the cut, jazz spots that I go to 
just to yeah chill and be anonymous or as anonymous as you can be at six three with an afro but <laughs> but um the one thing that really like is disheartening for me when I'm in these jazz clubs is um oftentimes like tourists will come and they'll just mm-hmm. talk over you. And it's almost like you're just a human jukebox and just in the background to their conversation. Like, is that yeah. just, that's the disheartening thing that you were. Um, I don't know if I realized it as tourists then. I mean, that was 20 years ago. I moved to New York 20 years ago last right. summer. Well, now um, I observe. I, I observe it as yeah. tourists. Like I'll go now. To well, now it is more tourists. It right. is more so than it used to be. But I mean, I think at the time, like I couldn't get a gig there yet because I wasn't as good of a piano player. And a lot of those places didn't hire a ton of singers. I'm not saying they never hired singers, but it wasn't really. It didn't seem that easy for me to play in a place where people were really listening. Oh, you would you have know what to. I'm saying? So your piano chops had to be on point. To get kind of, I get it. Okay, I see. yeah, and also just like the gigs I could get and did get were restaurant gigs. Where I kind of knew going in, they weren't like listening room gigs, and they were great practice. But um, once I started playing original music for tips instead of like forty bucks, mm-hmm. um, it was just more satisfying. I started waiting more tables and doing less restaurant gigs and more singer songwriter place gigs. And it was more sad. It was just more fulfilling All and right, so inspiring, if that some, makes sense. So I'm curious, uh, before you started doing original material, you would just go through uh, the fake book and just do the standards? Of- yeah, I kind of mostly did standards. I mean, I wouldn't just, yeah. I mean, I had like my favorites and um, that's, I would do a lot of that. I wonder, is is the fake book still a thing? I still have one. You still have a fake? Okay. Yeah. For our listeners out there, um, I don't want to. I don't want to date myself, but I would probably say that if you were a jazz musician, uh, a working jazz musician, or a student in the '60s, '70s, or '80s, there was sort of a a Wikipedia slash uh, Cliff Notes uh, guide tutorial to chord charts of every jazz song. And the same for singers as well. And it's, like, it's almost like a Bible of jazz, which yeah. you kind of need. Uh, it's if pretty you're, cool. So you still, so they still make fake books. I don't know. I know I have an old, old, old one. Yeah, it's I was like, going to say, do you know why they call it a fake book? I don't know. But then they had the real book. They call, called it the real book, I thought. And then they called it a fake book too. But I could never understand the difference between a real book and a fake book. Well, I my, my was, guess is that the, the fake book had other songs in it and it wasn't officially done by that company, but. Yeah, it was they, definitely like not, nobody got paid for it. <laughs> it right. wasn't, it wasn't, <laughs> um, it wasn't cheap music. It was like cheat music that, that was underground and circulated like on a Xerox machine. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. What, when did you get your deal? And how did you come to the attention of Bruce at uh, Blue Note? Well, I was doing one of those jazz um, restaurant gigs at the garage on 7th Avenue. And my bass player's friend's wife, they all came for brunch. It was like a brunch gig. 
Um, and she happened to work for EMI Music Publishing, and she, and I was doing jazz at that gig. I had started, you know, doing those songwriter gigs already, but this was a jazz gig. And um, she said, "Hey, I know Bruce Lenval. I met him at a company picnic. What if I set up an appointment for you?" And I was like, "All right, whatever." Not thinking right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, okay. I mean, sure, I'll show up. That's for sure. But I I didn't really know if she was for real. Right. And um, I had a, a demo that I had made to take around to clubs to get gigs. So I brought the demo. I had two uh, standards on it. And mm-hmm. I had one song by my friend Jesse Harris, who wrote Don't Know Why. And we were already friends and playing around together. Right. And so I brought it in. I was 20. It was, uh, the gig was my 21st birthday. So it was probably 2000. The uh, Yeah, it was 2000. Uh, April of 2000 uh, is when I had this meeting with him. On your birthday? And it was, no, the gig was on my birthday, so it was like a, a month later. Shortly after. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And then that's when you knew shit was real. I mean, I knew she could get me an appointment with him. I didn't really <laughs> know what was real for a while, but um, he he said, well, there's this pop song on here kind of. It's not really a pop song, but whatever. It was not a jazz standard. Right. And he's like, so do you want to be a jazz singer or a pop singer? And I was like, uh, I'm sitting there in Blue Note office, a uh, jazz singer, <laughs> you know? And then he gave me some money to make some demos. And the demos ended up being a few of the songs from that first record. And he decided that it wasn't super jazz. It wasn't like, it wasn't what he thought. It wasn't jazz, but he still liked it enough to sign it. Right. So he went ahead and signed me. All right. So in hindsight, because no one can plan, no one can plan this phenomenon. How does one capture lightning in a bottle? Like, there's no way in the world that you can ever foresee that you're about to uh, make history. I don't even know if you accepted the fact that you've made history, or if you're just taking the no. Just, those are the. <laughs> that's what I was feeling at the time in 1999 and made these songs and that well, sort yeah. of thing. It definitely was. The actual album was just us capturing moments, as as a lot of albums are. But I think this one was done with a lot of um, spontaneity and um, don't so know why. Th- at- that song, Don't Know Why, was the demo that we recorded the first day of recording. And it was the live take. Everything in the take is live. We added an extra guitar and some harmonies, and that was it. So that was the very first thing you recorded? Yeah, and that was for these demos to get signed. It wasn't even signed yet. And then once I got signed, I like went back in and we did a bunch of more produced sessions that ended up getting mostly cut. And then we went back to kind of the demo style of, of recording. Just said, oh, let's get that first song we did and see what happens with that. We tried to re-record <laughs> Don't Know Why, and it was so not as good. So we just Dude, cut the demo. I'm, it's 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 funny you say that. Do you, do you know the story behind um, Christina Aguilera's Beautiful? Mm-mm. Uh Linda Perry has a story in which, you know, um, like she wants her artist to like live with a demo for about uh-huh. three or four weeks. And then that way they really internalize the song and then they come back and then they kill the song. Huh. And so Christina's like, all right, let me just go in and sing this thing real quick. And so she just did like a rough, you know, yawn. All right, here's my take. And then I'll come back and I'll really... You know, Bef- kill the oh, shit. Be- you mean before she lived with it? 
Yeah, no, yeah. Okay. Before she lived with it, you know, and then Christina's expecting like to add her, mm-hmm. you know, all of her Aguilera-isms to it, and um, you know, Linda was like, "No, uh, let's just stick with the the demo." And Christina, like, it was like the biggest fight of their relationship. Oh, like, really? <laughs> and she's like, "No, the dryness and the regularness of this is what sells the song. Trust me." And she, I don't know if they forced it or kicked it and screamed it, but like she, Linda Perry won the, the battle and the demo is the version that we know. Whereas Christina felt like, let me, you know, add yeah. exclamation points to the end of the sentence. And she's well, I mean, like, she, she's like an athlete. She's like this insane Right, but this, right? But, this, but, but this was just a foul shot. It wasn't yeah. a. It wasn't the you know the the all star dunk no, contest. But it had the heart. I mean, I think that for me, I'm way better on first takes or, or not even just first takes, but like when the spontaneity factor is there. And yes, you need to know the song and be able to sell the lyric. But mm-hmm. um, for me, when I when I overthink or over rehearse something, it's not as good. Yeah, my, I my like the spontaneity. My engineer is smart enough to know to record everything. So yeah. oftentimes I'll like quote run down a performance and then be like, all right, let me go for it. And then we always just wind up choosing the yeah. where you're not thinking about it. Um I or, have the, to- or the fifteenth drunk take. <laughs> yeah. It's like you do the first <laughs> three, you know. <laughs> Okay, so you worked with one of my heroes on this record, um, Mr. Martin. Yeah, Arif Martin. Uh, yeah, Arif, you know, he, for me, uh, I know this is odd for people to hear, but the average white band is like, they they were my heroes growing up, and their drummer, Steve Farone, uh is my drumming idol. Steve Farone actually gave me his actual drum set from all those sun. Uh, sessions that I still use on the Tonight Show now, and Arif produced them, and so that's how I came to attention from you because it's almost like anything that Arif has touched, then I purchase it without fault. So that's how, like, that's funny. I was like, oh wow, he has a new artist. He's still producing. Oh my god! <laughs> and then that's how it, it, it entered. How did you? How how was he assigned to you? Well. When Bruce Linval signed me, um, I was obsessed with um, the Cassandra Wilson New Moon Daughter album that was on yeah. Blue Note that he yeah. had, you know, put out mm-hmm. a few years before. And I really wanted to work with Craig Street, who's an amazing producer. And so I did. And it was incredible. We had the most amazing musicians. I love Craig. It was great. But there was something about those sessions that just didn't capture my my vocal in the right way that where it sounded like the thing from the demos that we had already captured. Mm -hmm. So we ended up kind of going back to the drawing board, which was crazy at the time. I didn't think I was going to have the option to remake my record. Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't think they were going to give me any extra money to do it. Right. And I, I, it was weird that um, it even happened, but Bruce, it was his idea to go back and try to, recapture the sort of first thing we did so he said but i'm gonna have my friend arif martin he had just hooked up with manhattan uh the label that bruce was also running was 
another label called Manhattan. Anyway, mm-hmm. Arif was doing stuff with him. And so he said, I want Arif Martin to come and do it. And I was really nervous at that point. I was like, ah. Did you know his pedigree by that point? I did. I mean, I grew up on all those Aretha records and on Donny Hathaway. And um, mm-hmm. I was nervous that he was going to come in and not listen to me or not because he was this huge producer and then he came in and he's like the sweetest older Turkish man. Mm -hmm. And, um, he came into the sessions and I told Bruce, I was like, okay, but, uh, after a couple days, if it's not working out, you're just going to let me do this. Right. It was so weird. I was like 21 years old, you know, I was both scared and also really stubborn, (laughs) you know? Right. Right. And, and he ended up being, he let us kind of do our thing but he guided us, but he knew the situation. And so the more we got to know him, the more he was able to help, um, you know, tell us more what, what we should do musically. But he became like this great friend. I never in my life thought I would have a, a friend who was a Turkish man in his seventies. He was like one of my best friends and it was incredible. Man. I think the night that I First met you in person was at the Grammys uh, when it was at New York, the night that you... Oh, yeah. Because we were like rehearsing with Eminem so much, I couldn't get to a reef. I, oh, I yeah. was, saw him in the audience and wanted to jump from my drum set like <laughs> and stalk him, <laughs> but I, I couldn't do that. Um, he was special. I'm going to be the one person that doesn't ask you the cliche of, so what have you learned after, you know, or... <laughs> Any lessons. So, however, I will say that uh, once Kenny G covers your song, that's something. I forgot that. (laughs) I forgot about that, actually. How many emails did you get over that? I don't remember. I remember Pat Metheny did it, did Don't Know Why. I mean, I didn't write that song. My friend Jesse Harris wrote it. But still, yeah. We still associated with you. Yeah. And I still feel like I own it a little bit. But um, (laughs) I don't remember. I must have forgotten that era there was a whole era there where i don't remember very much but that's so funny i forgot about that completely all right y'all you know what season it is tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel and if you're like me you're already in your airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you now listen while i'm looking to spend all this money what i'm not doing is thinking about making money with airbnb See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo 
two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Varian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. How eager were you to... Knock over your your Jenga design to start all over again. <laughs> I mean, that's the only way I can describe yeah. it. You that's build a good way destroy. to describe it. Yeah. How, how eager were you to do it? I was super eager. I was just eager to make music, and I was eager to play guitar and write more songs. I was inspired. I was listening to a ton of like bluegrass at the time, so my second album was a little bit more country inspired. But um, I was definitely excited to get it over with as well. That's not to say I rushed the music at all or that I was like hurrying and put out something I wasn't proud of, but I was stoked to be inspired and to just go ahead and plow through the second record and not, not overthink it. Oh, for feels like home. Correct. Yeah. I think, but that did like a million its first week, which, yeah, which was great. Which it almost is like, okay. <laughs> all right. I can move on now. More than, <laughs> <laughs> Where did you out of out of your you know because you you've gone through so many um I won't even say phases because I don't feel like these are like drastic Bowie or Prince like um changes in your music but I mean you you definitely add a personality to all your records my I, okay so my personal favorite of 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 your canon is um. Little Broken Hearts, but for you, and don't give me the, like, all my all my <laughs> records are like my children, and I yeah, can't Yeah, some of them, them. I, I like more than others. <laughs> Just kidding. But what, do you, what do you feel is, like, what's your, I put my, my ass in that one, my foot in that one. Mm, I think I also love that one you're talking about. Um, See, I'm smart. The Danger Mouse one. It's just so different, and I love the sonics of it. But it's funny because I've been playing um, – the last couple of years I've been playing here and there with a piano trio 
just mm-hmm. me and um, Brian Blade on drums, Chris Thomas on bass, sometimes different bass players. But um, I, when I started playing with this group, I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to pull out some of the more jazzy songs in my catalog. But truthfully, my favorite songs to play with this setup is the songs from that album, Little Broken Hearts. And they are not, it's not, it's just not what I thought it would be. They're just, I think they're great songs. And I, I think, I think that Brian Burton is an incredible songwriter and we had so much fun making that record. And uh, yeah, I agree. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's definitely special. Do you feel, what is your creative process like with songwriting? Because I know that collaboration is also Mm -hmm. a big thing for you. Do you, tend to do birds of a feather as as far as uh, flock to people that, because I know that you've worked with Jeff Wilco. Uh, uh, Jeff, Jeff Tweedy. <laughs> Jeff Wilco. I always call him Jeff Wilco every time Why? I see him. Okay. <laughs> no, like you work with Tweedy. And, and, but I'm just saying that, do you often ever consider like totally, like, okay, well, time out. Uh, I, I totally forgot now that you worked with Andre 3000. So oh, even yeah. when you're entering in what we would think your general audience would think like not familiar territory, like how does the, how does the process start? Well, I mean, a lot of stuff I've collaborated with people on, it's already done. And I'm just coming in and singing like with the Andre 3000 thing, the Q-tip song, I, I went in and I just sang what he wanted me to sing. But um, as far as collaborating songwriting wise, it's been evolving over the years. It's completely changed. I mean, I used to be a a nervous songwriter and now I'm, I think after doing the record with Brian, actually, his process really opened me up to no fear songwriting. I'm just curious because uh, we're supposed to eventually get with Brian. What is his actual process? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because no, the thing is, I know his, I, I know his YouTube process. Yeah, it might be different for everyone. Oh, I know that's way different. I want to know another non-YouTube way. Like, how how does it yeah. start? Well, for us, I mean, we just went in. We're pretty comfortable with each other at this point. We were already friends. We'd already hung out a bunch. I did, I sang on the Rome album with him. So I got to know him through all that. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, we both play whatever instruments sound good in the room. And the song starts with a weird bass line or a weird chord progression or me strumming something on the guitar. Um, and it goes, so you always there. start with music first. I mean, honestly, I don't remember completely. Not always. Sometimes, like, it'll be a melody, mm-hmm. or he'll have a melody in his head, or he'll have a lyric and a melody in his head, or I will. And it sort of just built from there. And usually, we try to get a mel- some kind of melody down, whether he's hearing something or whether I am. And then this is where I learned a lot from him. Mm-hmm. Because, first of all, this process was totally different than anything I'd ever done. I'd never gone in the studio with nothing or with a bunch of instruments and just like adding stuff, layering okay. it. I've never done that. I had never done that. And so I would, I would like sing some scratch lyrics. He's like, that's cool. We'll get the lyrics later. I was like, really? I'm so worried about it. Are we going to get him? You know? And um, I would come in and I'd be like, I'm just worried about this 
I really like this, but I don't know what to write. The, what are the lyrics? He's like, they'll come. Don't worry about it. And mm-hmm. you know what? They always came. And they were always in the moment and heartfelt. And, you know, we worked on them. But that was a nice uh, way for me to learn. And lately I've been doing more of that. I've been going in with people with nothing and just trying to like throw stuff at the wall and coming out with stuff that I'm totally in love with, you know? So you never go through, cause the one, the one thing I have to commend you on at least is that you deliver and you push through. Cause normally um, whenever anyone gets into a position of something that gargantuan or successful, that's usually when they start sabotaging their creative process, that's usually when writer's block sets in and decades go by before <laughs> you even hear another note from them. And so yeah. the fact that you push through it. And also, I mean, all your side projects with the the, the Little Willies and with uh, Puss in Boots. How many yeah. other side projects do you have? Which one is, my, well, my favorite is Carlo. What project you're is like that? The, you're like the only fan of that band. You Fucking know that, yeah. right? <laughs> Fucking yeah. Fucking yeah. <laughs> that project is called El Madmo, and that was brief, but um, we put out a record, and we didn't put any of our names on it because at the time, I think it was right after my second album had come out, and I think part of me staying creative and enjoying music was to pull back a little bit from all the attention and right. so this album was really fun. And then we put it out under these fake names and then nobody really knew about it. It was kind of like we totally sabotaged it by doing that. But you're like <laughs> the only fan. But Yeah, I, I, I have it. It's still on my iPod. Yes, I that still was sort that. of the beginning of me playing guitar. And, and we went on like this huge stadium tour on the Feels Like Home record, basically. And my drummer and my backup singer at the time we started this band and me and her learned how to play bass and guitar a little bit. And that was before Puss in Boots continued my sort of guitar education. But uh, speaking of collaborations, how did you and Billy Joe Armstrong wind up doing the, the Everly brothers album? Billy Joe called me and he asked if I would be into doing this thing. And I, I was a little unsure. I was like, well, let's go in the studio a couple of days and see if, we fit. I'm not going to commit to like. Did you know album. anything like of him? Oh yeah, I knew Green I mean, Day. Not, I mean, well, not sure. Green Day, but I mean, like, it was like a cold call, and yeah, it was cold call, and I picked up. No, <laughs> see, that's what happens when you pick up. And it was only <laughs> no. now you got to commit to an album. <laughs> <laughs> oh damn it! No, no, I don't remember. I don't remember it was a cold call, but um. Well, I can, yeah. I can only imagine that. <laughs> There's other projects that have been uh, pitched to you that you were sort of like, uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> or wait, can you name one artist that you were supposed to work with? Or I'll never tell. Okay. Um, there have been you a couple done a, times have you, have you done I a said no to things that I regretted saying no to, though. Let I me know say. one. Let me know one. No, I feel weird. <laughs> Just say one. It's a regret, I meaning can't. that you... you I you, regret... I got an email from Pharrell once and I, I was just too busy or something. I don't know. I was bummed. I didn't do it, but I don't know. Ah, I don't damn. know if it was something crazy or what, but. Um, I would have liked you on a song that starts with four hits at the beginning. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Tell him to call me back. I missed, I missed my chance. No, nah, um, no. Nah, he's, he's always creating. So. 
Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is I think I went through a little period of kind of being overwhelmed by everything Mm -hmm. and just wanting to sort of chill. Um, so I said no to some things that year. I was had a little bit of a my own little mini nervous breakdown. But yeah, Billy Joe called me and I said, let's try a couple days before we, you know, commit to doing it. Cause he wanted to do this whole album. It wasn't just a song or two. Mm-hmm. And it was cool. He let me hire the band from New York. He came to New York to do it. And um I really love that record. It's beautiful. Wow. Yeah. Surprising. Well, I mean, it's not surprising because it is surprising. Well, I mean, the thing is, is that I was sort of like, okay, uh." but then it's like, okay, you collaborate with everyone. So it's almost like I'm not shocked. It wasn't that shocking, but um, yeah. Okay. So I I play well with others, you could say. All right. So our alto saxophone (laughs) drum collaboration. (laughs) We'll do Sun Ra songs or whatever. Oh, that'd be fun. So is, is Pick Me Off the Floor, that's going to be your eighth record, correct? I don't know. Well, your eighth Nora Seventh Jones. or eighth. I'm not sure. Okay. Besides uh, the single, I haven't heard the... Oh, you haven't? I haven't heard the album yet, but... Oh, that's too bad. I really, I think you'll be into it. Are you into Brian Blade? Yes. Uh, well, more than that, I'm a Nora Jones fan. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not doing this because you're just next on the pike. Like. <laughs> well, I think you'd like it because um, it it's a lot of this piano trio stuff I was talking about. I got really mm-hmm. inspired to write for this piano trio setup, and we ended up adding stuff and adding some production to it. But it all most of the records started sort of stripped down, and the single is actually not even what this is. The the two songs I've released so far are the two exceptions to the sort of piano trio base of this record. But so it's um, the opposite of it. Yeah, a little bit. But that's okay. But um Who did yeah, you work two, with production wise? Um I did two songs with Jeff Tweedy. Okay. And those were awesome. And then the rest I just sort of did it in New York. Um I've been doing these collaborations and trying to release singles lately just to stay inspired and not have to do like a whole album cycle. And in the process of doing all these, I got all these extra tracks that I loved. And so they all kind of fit together. And that's So you're just going to do a bunch of one-off singles and. Yeah, I have been doing, I have been trying to just like collaborate with people I love. Like, like doing that Billy Joel thing was so cool, but it was still a commitment because it was a whole album. So I've been trying to do just one song with people. Um, I did one with Tank, you know, Tank from Tank yeah. the Bangas and, mm-hmm. um, Jeff Tweedy. We did a couple. And these two songs on this album are from that session too. I just had all these extra songs from these okay. sessions. So. All right. Well, I mean, yeah. in, in, in terms of, do you still feel that the, the date will still get honored or. I think we pushed it to June. Um, okay. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I feel like people are home. Maybe they want something to listen to, but I think everybody's watching Netflix, so <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> what are you? What are you watching? Like, what have you binged out on? Oh, um, a lot of Barbie Dreamhouse. Um, so, what, what your else. kids are watching? Yeah, basically, I don't have any control. Yeah, it's funny. I four I to seven. Thinking, your kids are in the house. Oh God, they do. And I, every night they go to sleep, and then I'm like, cool. I'm gonna watch something. <sighs> nope. I'm asleep. I see. I see. I feel you. 
Have you watched Last Man on Earth? Uh, the sitcom? Yeah. With, uh, what's his name? Will uh, Forte. Uh, I love that show to death. Yes. I love that show so much. I was so sad when it stopped. I know. I, every it's, night, I, ch- I think I'm going to rewatch Last Man on Earth right now. It feels like the right moment. But um, I, I'm, I'm one of those people that when I commit to a series and I know it's going to be over, I never watch the last three. Like my penultimate is always like the last three or four. So even with like Modern Family, which I, <laughs> as a completist, I feel like I have to watch the last season, even though it kind of waned off after season nine. Oh, yeah. But I never like watching the last three episodes of a series when it's over. And really? Yeah, I loved I loved uh, um, Last Man on Earth and... I kind of feel like that's my reality right now. Well, I know. That's that's what reminded me of it for sure. Wait, yeah. so you didn't watch the last three episodes? No, no, I did. Yes. Oh, you did? I didn't watch, I the, la- I didn't watch the last three yet. No. Oh, you should watch them now. <sighs> it's it's the time is right. I hate goodbyes. I mean, I I, I, I don't know. It's, it's like hard. You like having it hanging over your head? Yeah. But the, now you're right. Now is the time to do it because I've been watching i made the mistake of watching that damn uh what do you call it the tiger king thing oh i didn't watch that yeah which i kind of want my nine hours back well you were part of a uh, a movement <laughs> you <laughs> no, were in it with the rest of the world every right i mean everyone was part of this conversation i was like i felt fomo and i wanted you know okay yeah. i want to watch it too and now I regret it yeah so I don't know. I mean, I'm going to finish Ozarks. and Oh, yeah. I want to start that because I have never watched that. Everybody's talking about that. Okay. So does, in my opinion, does, okay, does Sopranos or The Wire or Breaking Bad mean anything to you? Um, I watched all of The Sopranos. I watched all of Breaking Bad. Okay. I did not watch all of The Wire. Okay. Uh, then this could easily be... In fourth place. I mean, in my personal opinion, I feel like Sopranos. Oh, no doubt. No cool. doubt. I mean, even uh, uh, one of the uh, actresses has already won an Emmy for a performance. It's 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 that level of of darkness and sounds delicious. So that's that's my recommendation. Oh, wait, now I feel like I'm taking you away from creativity if I'm telling you to start binging out on television no, shows. No, I would. I would love to have a show to binge on. I would love to <laughs> <laughs> okay. go write a song, but <laughs> I see. I see. Well, um, you know, I appreciate you for taking the time out to, to do this. And uh, you too. You know, Good to see you. Hopefully. I don't know. Maybe you can, you know, broadcast from your crib. Do you do social media at all? No, it's, it's kind of terrifies me. I've started doing some live recordings and putting them out during all this. Right. And it's been fun, but um, I'm not good at like browsing the comments. It just oh, makes me No, no, never read crazy. the comments. Never read the comments. Just- makes me feel crazy. I've tried to do I tried to do Instagram a few years back and I just felt like an idiot because I don't want to show pictures of my kids, but I don't want to fake it and pretend. Right. So I just I hated it. I couldn't I couldn't deal. And then I was thinking about, oh, what would be a good post? I'm like, okay, that goes against the point. You either got to like just post whatever or 
or don't post what you're cooking. That's a that's a good place to start. <laughs> no one no one ever <laughs> disagrees. Hot dogs with... for lunch again. Yes, there you go. <laughs> you should just start a hot dog account. Seriously. <laughs> All right. Account. Well, Nora, I appreciate you. Thank you for your artistry. Thank you for taking the time out. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Questlove Supreme. We have Team Supreme. I bid you adieu. Stay safe, everybody, and we will see you on the next one. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.